Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Coniella Ng, Democratic candidate for Congress in Hawaii's first. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Yeah, we're glad to have you. I've been following your campaign for a while now. And something I really appreciate is that you're a part of this movement of Democratic candidates who are telling the establishment and voters that as Cynthia Nixon said, we don't just need to elect more Democrats, we also need better Democrats. What does that mean to you and how does your candidacy represent that sentiment? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. And it really hits a nail on the head of conversations going on, not just here in Hawaii, but across the nation. And, you know, whether you're on the right or the left, I think people all over are waking up to the fact that our politics, our democracy is being controlled by just a handful of wealthy elites. So, the struggle really um, to most folks who don't even see the world that way, left and right, it's the bottom coming for the top. That, you know, we have three men now that hold more wealth than 50% of Americans. Here in Hawaii, houses houses cost like $770,000 now as a median, which means you got to be making $200,000 coming out of high school or college just to be in the middle class. So, it's, it's like the economy is rigged against our generation. We're not set up for success. Things need to change. And if you look at the people um, donating to campaigns, it's the same people that are donating to Donald Trump are funding my Democratic opponents, right? So, it's just this cycle of corruption that um, is beyond just um, partisanship and uh, where you land on the political spectrum. It's really uh, a populist uprising. And, um, you know, if Democrats don't, don't seize that, uh, then Republicans will. And they have been. Yeah, for sure. I think the populist uprising is really interesting. We hear the term populist being thrown around so much nowadays. People are usually referring to the right, which, you know, these ethno-nationalists like Donald Trump and Marine Le Pen. What does leftist progressive populism look like? What does that actually mean? All of us together, the people who are most affected by policy, but have been silenced for years, um, banding together and, and rising up. There's just so many towns that we're driving through from Vegas to Arizona and we're passing um, towns that seem to be uh, having lots of folks moving away, just like what's happening here in Hawaii. And, you know, just thinking to myself, like, what did these people think uh, when our candidate got on stage and said, America is already great? They feel ignored. Like, America is already great for 50% of Congress people who are millionaires, even though, you know, only 1% of us in the general population are. But for the most of us, we've been struggling before 2016, before Donald Trump was elected. And until we show everyday people that, you know, we feel your pain, the system isn't working for you. We need to build an economy that works for all of us. Um, we're conceding that frustration to the right and they're, they're going to be seized by, um, they're going to be scapegoating immigrants and other vulnerable people when really they have us scrapping over these crumbs under the table when they're just this handful of corporate fat cats eating the entire pie. You know, the, a progressive populism means um, building an international movement of um, all of us together taking down this oligarchy that's controlling both political parties today in America. What policies are you offering as an alternative? What alternative vision and message do you want the people to hear? Yes. So, I think Bernie Sanders in his 2016 campaign uh, led the way with with his values, with our values, communicating them in a really simple way that healthcare is a human right and uh, everyone, no one should have to worry 
um, or choose between paying the bills or paying for, or pay, you know, paying for food or paying for medicine. Like that's in the richest country in the history of the world. We have no excuse that anyone can't deal with their, with their health issues and, and stay healthy. College should be a, um, a human right as well. Education, obtainment, as, as long as you're able to uh, achieve to, to do it and work hard enough, uh, you should go to meet your potential. Of course, looking at the future and addressing climate change uh, as the immediate threat that it is. Uh, here in Hawaii, where, you know, Waikiki and the neighborhood that my son is growing up in could be underwater within his lifetime. Um, by 2100, we're expecting a three level, a three foot sea level rise unless we act now. Um, so these are the, really the policies that we need to be thinking of. But we're also expanding it this year and talking about issues like student loan cancellation to save our economy and a federal job guarantee to uh, shift power back to the workers and ensure livable jobs for everyone and uh, universal basic income uh, to combat automation and to bring humanity back to uh, our values. Like We're more than just what we produce for, for the economy. Policies are really catching on and we're really building a movement here in Hawaii and I know candidates are running on these things across the nation and it's really exciting to see. I think that's a really interesting point, the idea that people are more than their economic output. And I kind of want to use that to go back to your point about the rights scapegoating of immigrants, because your immigration policy is really radical and progressive in a way we haven't seen from really anyone in the democratic establishment. You are calling for the abolition of ICE, and I'd like to speak about that. But additionally, with your previous point, the centerpiece, I think, of democratic immigration policy is probably the DREAM Act. And I'm sure, as you know, the DREAM Act would actually only cover about 30% of the undocumented population and definitely relies on this idea that immigrants are only worth their economic output. Could you tell us about your view on how the political discourse values immigrants? Sure. First of all, it's, it's easy to, to pull up data that shows that most undocumented immigrants are net contributors to our economy. They, they're not privy to a lot of the benefits that our citizens are, but they pay disproportionate amounts of taxes through sales tax, through income tax, through uh, just their everyday living. But, you know, like you said, it's sort of dangerous to characterize, to frame the argument that way. What we really need to focus on is just human needs and suffering. Abolishing ICE isn't radical. The existence of ICE is radical. The fact that we have an agency working for the government that can break into people's homes in the middle of the night and, and rip apart their children from from parents or the parents from the children, they disappear the next day. That's, you know, you never thought that would be in America. Like ICE didn't exist before 2002. It's a new creation. You know, it was during the, the Bush era, the Iraq war era, where, um, you know, they exploited our, our paranoia for the other after 9-11. Just the fact that it exists is, is really shameful and it's going to be a dark time in history, I think, when we look back at this moment. It's going to be like how, um, you know, during the Japanese internment, a lot of our ancestors as, you know, I'm, I'm American of Japanese ancestry, um, you know, we've been through a lot of this and uh, I just, you see these patterns and you realize that it's people in power tapping into the frustration of, of like everyday people and if we don't you know, see that and tap into it in a more positive, productive, and inclusive way, then we're just prone to the to the rise of fascism that we're seeing all across the world. 
So you mentioned earlier the prospects of a federal jobs guarantee. Could you tell us a little more about that and how it would be implemented? First of all, it's already sort of been done. Eleanor Roosevelt in his second Bill of Rights called for a job for every citizen who wants one. And they practically eliminated unemployment at the time. And now we're seeing workers more productive than ever, but they're just keeping less and less of of what they're making. Um, the rest of it is going to the top one, so like 0.1% of the population. It's too much wealth in too few hands, too much power in too few hands, and a job guarantee would really help alleviate that. If you just took a walk outside your door, you'll see that there's so much work to be done. Roads to be paved, bridges to be built, uh, trees to be planted, elderly folks to be cared for, children to be taught, but the public se- private sector is just not being that demand right now. That's what the job guarantee is all about. That we're turning these unemployment offices into employment offices where you can walk in and uh, leave with uh, something to do and be able to uh, make enough to live. As I'm sure you're aware, there's this debate, kind of conflict on the left, or at least perceived conflict between universal basic income and a jobs guarantee. What are your thoughts on this? I think we should do both. And I didn't fully answer your last question of like how we're going to pay for it and what will it look like. If we can pay for one a $1.5 trillion payout to corporate donors that get to Republicans in the form of a tax break or tax reform, then we can definitely afford to spend that money to actually help working people in the form of a job guarantee or a universal basic income. Um, I think we should be doing both because... Uh, you know, people should be able to get a job that they could live on if they if they want one. Um, but people are also more than just the labor they produce, and we have automation um, taking over so much of our jobs today, like truck drivers and um, you know factory jobs, and at, at an alarming rate, more than ever before. You know, a, a universal basic income of just a thousand or a couple thousand dollars a year will generate trillions of dollars for our economy help curtail the effects of automation and globalization. Now, a job guarantee could be done in itself without a universal basic income because, uh, but you would have to broaden the, the definition of what a job is, you know, because it, staying at home, care for kids, a job that, uh, you know, it's been traditionally done by women and thus undervalued because of patriarchy and art. And I'm sure that we value these things as we, or we, we pay these occupations a rightful amount of the value they give to our society. And when it comes to universal basic income, I know that there's been a few, there's a lot of apprehension on the left about billionaires using it as an excuse to just automate everything and eradicate wage labor. And they just want to throw money at people um, that they stole their jobs from just to make sure that they still have customers to buy their products. Uh, so, you know, we gotta, that's why I think a combination of both policies would be the best way to go. And what about student debt elimination? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of scary. Like most of my friends have enormous piles of student debt. Like I come from a working class family. Neither of my parents went to college, so I had to assume a, a lot of debt, over fifty thousand total. And you know, I've been paying off over ten thousand now, um, but I barely like even crack through. The, the capital. It's mostly just paying off interest. So there's a bubble that's about to explode like our housing bubble did in 2008, 2009. And if we don't uh, 
take care of that soon, um, it's going to be devastating for our economy. So it's, it's really a way to uh, not just give our young people a shot at life and be able to you know, invest in mortgages and um, really enter the middle class, but also just save our economy at large because I don't see these exorbitant debts. I don't see that working in the long term. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called C-Note is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings, all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average C-Note customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with C-Note, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is going to help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses, build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With C-Note, you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics and know that C-Note does not charge any fees. There are no minimums, and sign-up take less than five minutes. Check them out. I think a concern a lot of activists have for Democratic candidates is whether or not they'll stay true to their promises in office. Because we've definitely seen candidates who ran as these proud leftists and then ended up veering to the right once they actually entered office. What can you say to voters who have these fears, who are worried that they're not going to be able to keep you or other progressive candidates accountable? Yeah, you know, some of it, I've seen that in my time in office. I've seen a lot of people who are actually to the left of me move very quickly to the right. Some of it's just up to personality. Some people want to just go along with the pack. Others are just more rebellious by nature, I think. <laughs> you know, it's either you're with the money or you're against the money. And the moneyed interests always tend to be conservative. There are very few like big dollar donors who are going to stand with us. Most big donors have actual personal financial interests. They tend to be really conservative. So, unless you're rejecting all money, that is a fear that voters should have. You know, follow the money is, is what I say. And it'll, it'll tell you, it, it paints a, a much clearer story than the rhetoric that comes out of our mouths. So, speaking of money, you are currently in the midst of a scandal about campaign spending. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it's not about campaign spending. It's about um, the discrepancy between what some folks have reported giving to me versus what I reported. And uh, we, we searched through our records and it turns out that a lot of these checks I did receive, but I never deposited because I didn't want to take their money because uh, I didn't want them breathing down my neck later on, um, as is the case. I've been involved in six years and, you know, people want access and that's why they, they tend to give. Um, now, they're if there are any mistakes, uh, you know, my first race, I saying, is, is fully grassroots. Some candidates are able to win this, these elections with just, on the state level, with just uh, 20 to 50 donors cutting like $1,000, $2,000 checks. Uh, we did it much differently. So, we had hundreds of donors and, um, you know, after work and after campaigning, 
just our grassroots team just tried to input it ourselves. We didn't have the political professionals that the establishment had helping us. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm confident I'm working with the Campaign Spending Commission. Um, I'm really confident that, you know, when they look at our records, they're not going to see any ill intent. But um, I do know for a fact that my opponents have hired some of the best opposition researchers in the nation um, that are affiliated with the, you know, the, the mainstream corporate side of the Democratic Party in order to take us out. And they flew, flew them in here from D.C. and they're trying to throw the kitchen sink at me. So, um, you know, when you're young and fresh, they're going to try to turn those things into the negative and paint you as, uh, you know, experienced or irresponsible. So, we're just bracing ourselves and um, just trying to stick to our message, which is just positive and just building hope in, in the community because just people are really struggling out there in Hawaii. We have the lowest uh, wages and the highest cost, literally, in the, in the nation. Um, it's like rent is out of control. Highest rent. Um, our, our, our minimum wage is 10.10, which for Hawaii is like probably like $6 elsewhere. Uh, so it's really... Seventy uh, percent of my classes moved away to the mainland, so we need big change. How would you actually implement that in Congress? I think a lot of people are thinking back to the first years of Obama's presidency, where Democrats had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. Briefly, they had they had a majority in the House, they had the White House, yet they still failed to pass so much progressive legislation. They failed on so many progressive priorities, like the DREAM Act, like even a public option, not even Medicare for all, just they couldn't get a public option passed in Obamacare. What's going to be so different now, especially since we're probably going to have at least two more years of Donald Trump? Well, if we, first of all, yes, we need to take back the House and the Senate and the White House. Um, I think impeachment should be on the table. You know, investigate Trump um, Pence as well while you're at it. But even when all that happens, you're right to go back to 2009 when we had control of the Congress and the White House. We really squandered the opportunity. Uh, we made over 40 amendments for the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and we got zero Republican votes. So this idea that we can compromise with uncompromisable, with uncompromising Republicans is naive. Uh, I don't, th- I think most Americans understand that anything that we were to achieve to compromise wouldn't really help working people. Um, so we really need to be bold and lead the way. And that's actually what the Tea Party movement did in 2010 when, you know, when they took back control. Ted Cruz was out here talking about repealing Obamacare and like building a wall and all sorts of things that were outlandish at the time. And they thought he was ineffective because he wouldn't sit down with the Gang of Eight and hash out a compromise. But as soon as the GOP got back in power, they adopted the entire Cruz agenda. So why aren't we doing that as progressives to really stand up for what we believe in and, and get the American people on our side. So when we're back in power, we have that public mandate. Well, the answer to that question is we're afraid of our donors. And, you know, in 2009, we did have a shot to pass um, Medicare for all, a single payer or at least a public option. But we didn't want to disrupt big pharma and insurance companies that fund their campaign. So I think it's really important that we keep running and winning or um, even in races that, uh, you know, these insurgent progressive candidates don't win, um, shift the party to the left. Um, and that's what 
to the pop- where the population stands. Like that's what Elizabeth Warren did uh, when she rejected money from Wall Street and was really critical of them um, and demanded reform. And now less and less Democrats are taking Wall Street money. So we just got to expand that to more and more industries like the military industrial complex, big oil, and um, better yet, all corporations. That's a really interesting point, the idea that Democrats shouldn't compromise because there was just recently a poll release showing that Democratic inclination to compromise is going down exponentially, even though it has been far higher than the Republican inclination among voters for years. So I think that Democratic voters are really feeling what you're saying. But I think a lot of people in the center, even a lot of liberals are turned off by people who say we shouldn't compromise. Could you give us your perspective on what's so bad about the Republican Party? What are its fundamental flaws that make it not worth negotiating with? I think Randy Bryce said it best when he was running against Paul Ryan, who uh, <laughs> was scared and, and, and left Congress. But, um, you know, we care about everybody and they don't. And it's, it's clear, like this is life and death for people. When you're talking about ICE breaking apart families or talking about houseless individuals or, you know, hate crimes against transgender folks, like policies aren't just like these wonky discussions that happen on the 20,000 foot level. Like, it's all about seeing how they actually affect people. And the stuff coming from the Republican Party today are, are heartless in that sense. And to compromise that is to, you know, sacrifice lives. It's deep. It goes really deep. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm willing to work with anyone who shares my values. You know, I'm not, I'm not a partisan in that sense. Like if, you know, if, if a bunch of Republicans stood up for a single pair improved Medicare for all. Yeah, of course I'll work with them. But um, I, I just don't see that happening right now. They just wanted to move to limit that sort of freedom for individuals to um, have their basic needs met. And instead, their focus tends, tends to be on um, how to just how to grow the wealth of, of corporations in a select few. And frankly, Democrats shouldn't be so worried about that. Because we know that um, history shows us that even if our GDP, even if the economic pie grows, that workers are getting less and less of it. So uh, we really need to just focus on meeting our basic needs and communicating our values of an economy that works for all of us. I absolutely agree with that. But something I I'm not going to face anytime soon is actually being you know in the same chamber as those people you're talking about, as these Republicans you're talking about. And while I'm sure a fair, or at least I hope a fair amount of them will be gone by the time you enter Congress. You know, there are definitely going to be a lot left who are not just disagreeable, but like pretty violently bigoted. How are you going to, you know, interact with them when you are colleagues in Washington? We have, you'd be surprised, but we have a few of those guys here in Hawaii in the state house. I mean, we can like vigorously debate things and I can use the kind of rhetoric I just did in this interview, but if you're like, just remember people's birthdays and ask about their kids and just be like kind to them generally and, you know, show aloha, that goes a long way in, in relationship building and um, just being cordial and setting an example of the world you want to live in. So, so you know, I'll continue to do that. But when it, kind of, when it time, comes time to uh, lay it down in policies and our values, um, it does come off. So, what advice would you give 
to millennials who are progressive like you, who are considering running for Congress, but aren't necessarily in a progressive area. How do you communicate these values and these policies in a way that's universal? You should just remember that like partisans aren't voters. That I think there was a study done where 80 somewhat percent of folks don't even they can't even correctly place the current conservative with Republican and progressive with Democrat. Uh, they don't really see that the world in that way, left and right. That's more of an elitist point of view. They do see it as, um, are you with us? Are you with this like, group of elites that are have control of the government and are levers of power and are only interested in or only concerned about their self-interest? And as long as you can communicate that like you're you know, not only do I see you, but I feel your pain. Like, I deal with your stuff, too. Like, myself, I, I pay $2,000 a month for childcare, 700 a month for student loans, and, you know, it's tough. It's tough here in Hawaii. So, um, you know, that's what people are looking for, people who get it, people who aren't out of touch. They know that if you swim in the suit for too long in the political sphere, like you think that's what the world tastes like. You know, you just got to, just looking for people who who look like them and talk like them and dress like them. Uh, I will say that if you're looking to run for office, think about running on the state level, like the state assembly or state house level or, or local elections are the best way because really all you need, no consultants, you just need enough money to buy like a brochure, a hole puncher and some rubber bands that just to hang on, on doorknobs and just knock on every door, the doors of every voter. And you do that two or three times. Doesn't matter if they if they like only watch Fox News and have voted for Bush and Trump. They can't say you're not a hard worker. They can't say you're not listening. So when it's just them in the polling booth and they remember your conversation, they remember your face. Um, you can bet that they'll they'll vote for you regardless of party. That's all. That's all people are. You know, people want to be seen and treated as human, and they'll vote for someone who who can do that. So I, I absolutely agree when people stay in politics too long, they can lose touch with their constituents. How are you going to ensure that that doesn't happen to you? Are you agreeing to term limits or something like that? Yeah, I've been supportive, uh, supportive of term limits. But I do understand as well that people want you to be working for them as long as you're working for them. I'm at the point now where I don't even get invited to cocktail parties. People know where I stand. Uh, so I'm not necessarily swimming that soup like many politicians are, but I think Obama in his book Dreams of My Father wrote a one page about how he felt himself changing by being around so many very elite folks in the political realm and how he felt that it was really important to reconnect with his high school friends and, and just like normal folks. Uh, for me, like my campaign is funded by workers and they're people that I know can't afford sometimes they they cut me like fifteen dollars online they'll donate fifteen dollars online after they'll say like i i, I want to donate but I, I get my paycheck next friday that really means a lot to me because you know i know they're not like they work for it and they have no business giving your money away especially to a politician so when i think of it that way it just really drives me to make sure I'm representing them the best I can. For any listeners who might want to get involved or learn more about you, where can they find you online? Kanyela.ing.com. 
a strange name. It's Hawaiian Chinese. My first name is Hawaiian, kind of yellow. My last name's not easier, like the suffix. Yeah, it's, it's really easy to, to get involved. Uh, volunteer. We have programs to volunteer from all across the nation. And, uh, of course, donate the big red button in the corner. Uh, but yeah, just also learn more about the way we've done things. Because I think when we tell our stories, it allows for folks like us to get involved as well. Like, I know that if I haven't seen folks that could identify with growing up, I probably would have never thought I could do this. There's like no one, none of my friends' moms or dads were doctors or lawyers, and especially politicians, right? I just thought like the best jobs for me would be being a cop or a firefighter. And it wasn't until college and, and later where I realized like, wow, there's like, there's other opportunities out there. So, you know, I think the more people that come from working class backgrounds that get involved, the better off we'll be. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I've, as I, as I said before, I've been following your campaign for a while. I appreciate what you're doing. I think you're one of the most progressive candidates in the country. And it's so important that we do it, that, that we do stick with our values and not compromise them to the right. So it's really great to see you doing that. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, we will speak truth to power, but we'll do it with aloha and kindness. And I think that's, that's the way to move our country forward together. Yeah, absolutely. To our listeners, if you want to hear more interviews with great candidates for Congress, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.